Earners, what's up? Look, I want to give y'all a little peek behind the curtain of producing Earn Your Leisure. It's a lot more than just sitting down and chatting. It involves meticulous planning, recording, editing, and then promoting each episode to ensure it reaches all of you. And if you picked up any of our merch, then you know there's a whole extra layer of logistics from inventory management to shipping. Running a podcast is like running a small business. And speaking of business, I know many of you entrepreneurs are involved in e-commerce. You understand how crucial it is to streamline operations and cut costs wherever possible. That's why I want to talk to you about ShipStation, the multi-carrier shipping solution that integrates seamlessly with all your online sales channels. It's all about optimizing your shipping, connecting with expert partners, and freeing up more of your time to focus on scaling your business. Now let's talk about our experience with ShipStation. This tool has been a game changer for us, especially with automating routine tasks. Being able to manage everything from one dashboard and print shipping labels with just a click, absolute lifesavers. Plus, the discounts we get on shipping costs are incredible. Honestly, it feels like we're saving thousands. And as our show and merch sales have grown, ShipStation's robust automation and reporting features have helped us keep up without missing a beat. For those of you who get overwhelmed by order volumes, ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard is a dream come true. You can import orders from any sales channel, apply shipping preferences automatically, and handle customer service issues right there. Not to mention the savings with up to 89% off carrier rates like UPS, DHL Express, and USPS. It's no wonder over 130,000 companies stick with ShipStation long term. So, are you ready to turn your shipping challenges into growth opportunities? Head over to ShipStation.com and use promo code EARN for a free 60-day trial. Again, that's ShipStation.com, promo code EARN. Start streamlining your shipping and scaling your business today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Earners, what's up? Look, today I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind, a real weight on my shoulders. You know, we all have these moments, big or small, that just stick with us. When we don't talk about these things, then they can start to affect our lives in unexpected ways. That's why having a space to express these feelings is so important. I know firsthand the benefits of therapy. It's been transformative for my friends and family. Therapy can help you learn crucial skills like setting boundaries and developing coping strategies. It's not just about dealing with major events. It's also about enhancing your day-to-day -day life, allowing you to become the best version of yourself. So if you've been thinking about therapy, BetterHelp can be a great option for you. It's entirely online, which makes it super convenient and adaptable to your busy schedule. You start by filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can even switch therapists at any time if you feel the need without any additional cost. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash earnyourleisure today to get 10% off your first month. Remember, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash earnyourleisure. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over there now. This episode of the Market Mondays World Tour is brought to you with limited interruption by Ally. For the unforgettable moments you save for. We're all better off with an ally. On your feet and give it up for my guy, Dean Forbes. A legend in the game, and he came dressed to the nines. He, uh, he made a comment about American fashion. I've noticed that Europeans... <laughs> no, this is something I've noticed. That, that was funny. Europeans have a very um, disdain for American fashion, but... I, it's understandable. Most Americans can't dress, but you're not talking about you're not talking about people from New York, though. So that's different. That's a it's, different it's, conversation. It's just it's a difference. Like this New York fashion, and then there's Middle America fashion. There's New York fashion. I'm from the America Midwest, fashion. So it's do that. <laughs> yeah. well, good though. Ian, we, Ian's we, we adopted him. Uh, <laughs> but Dean, you look you look very sharp, my brother. Thank you. So let's get into this, man. What led you to become a CEO in the tech sector? Um, 
and what is your biggest motivator to keep going forward? Oh man, well firstly, thank you guys for having me here. Like I said before, you know, I'm a big, big fan of the show, big fan of the format, you know, getting these people together and thank giving you. all these gems, it's, a, it's amazing. So it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to, to be part of this. Um, I think I've you know told that story a couple of times. What what got me into tech was the biggest kind of failure in my career. Right, I was trying to play football that didn't work out. I had a bunch of debt, and then when that kind of all came to a head, uh, my agent at the time said, "You got to go work at Motorola because you're in so much debt. You need to earn money right now, otherwise it's going to cripple you for life." And very tough decision, very difficult moment in life, but it turned out it turned out to be turned out to be okay. Yeah. For someone sitting down in the crowd who is inspired by you being here tonight, if you can go back to when you were 19 or 20, what three pieces of advice would you give them? And talk about the ups and downs as well. But what three pieces of advice would you give them on the journey to becoming you? I mean, 19, 20, you know, I'm probably a year after being homeless. I'm a few months having been released right, from, from playing football. I got a mountain of debt. Like if you'd have said to me at that moment in time that life would be what it's become, it was like unimaginable that this that the things that have happened to me could have happened. Um, so it's a little bit strange to think back and say, what advice would you give yourself? Because my advice would be just chill out, you know, like stay calm, don't yeah. don't panic, um, work hard. And I think I probably wasn't good enough to have made it as a footballer, and that was important because when I failed. I kind of didn't want to fail again. So it was like the next thing I go into, you know, if it was bakery or I don't know, track and field, whatever it was, the next thing I went into, I was going to apply myself so hard, I was probably going to be okay or maybe even good at it. So if I could, if I could go back now, I would say, calm down, work ethic has to go up. Yeah. Um, and you got to be prepared to to kind of play this out for the long term. Like this is it's going to take a while, but you got you got to keep going with it. So it says a lot about your mindset, right? You, you had the mental fortitude to say, it doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to be successful because I'm going to turn up my mindset. I'm going to turn up the productivity. I want to go back, right? Because you start at Motorola, but your first CEO role is at the, the Paris-based firm uh, KDS. So what is that Dean Forbes like? Because this you've now climbed up a ladder and you've reached the pinnacle of a company at a firm. What was that like for you? That, that was... Uh, interesting learning experience because I kind of grown up at Primavera. I wasn't CEO at Primavera, but I'd led a big part um, of that company, and it became the fastest growing part of that company. It was an American software company, and, and my part of it became the largest, uh, largest part of it. So I think when I when I was in that position, then we sold the company to Oracle, and I made like life changing money in that transaction. Then Oracle said, "You got to stay, and we're going to pay you a bunch of money to stay because we think we think you're great." I was like king of the hill, right? I thought I'd, I thought I'd cracked life. Um, and then it, I didn't enjoy Oracle. I got approached to go do the KDS thing. And I was so sure of myself. I thought I'd made it. I'd worked at this big firm Oracle. I had all this money now. Um, and when I became uh, CEO of KDS, I took over from the founder of that company. Mm. And the employee base, you know, was just committed to the founder. They, I, you know, they didn't care about me. They didn't. I don't know that they cared about the company so much. They just were in love with this, the founder. With, with the founder. So I took over, had these great ideas. I had what I thought was an incredible CV. And I would hold staff meetings and management meetings and people wouldn't turn up. Like they just wouldn't, they wouldn't show up for the meeting. So you'd be wow. sat in a meeting with croissants and coffee and, and nobody's... Just you. And just you. Yeah, just you. And there was, a, there was even a time I went into a meeting room and I was like pouring coffee before the customer arrived and the team were complaining and they went off to speak to HR about me because I'd gone in the room and dared to pour coffee, which was there for, for clients. So it was a very difficult environment and it, it kind of brought me back to ground zero and said, you know, not, not everybody thinks you're good. <laughs> not, not everybody cares. And you're gonna have to kind of go back to the basics and kind of win people over and, you know, work a bit harder than this than I thought, than I, thought I would. But yeah, I, I thought I cracked it and everybody was just gonna do what I told them because I had this you know, I had a stellar kind of eight-year career, but yeah, it was very, very humbling and very educational. Did you ever think like, you're fired? You're not coming to me, you're fired. <laughs> well, like sometimes you have to have what I call like uh, public executions, you know? <laughs> like you, you, you can't and shouldn't do that to everybody, but you, there's a professional courtesy. Like if there's a meeting happening, 
you should show up. Like that's just a that's a professional courtesy. So when some of those things continued for a while, um, yeah, you got you know you have to make examples of people so that the rest of the village understands this this behavior isn't isn't okay. Hey, Shadow, you heard that? <laughs> that's right up your alley. Public executions. <laughs> if I can do a follow up real that quick, example. How are you able to turn the tide to then get them on your side after? Because I'm sure we have some um, entrepreneurs in here that may be having issues with their staff. Mm. How did you turn that ship to get them back? or initially um, in love with you when they were so invested into the founder? It's a, it's a really good point. I think it, that was such an important uh, learning moment for me, right? It, it just killed my ego. My CV was irrelevant. The amount of money I had was, was irrelevant. So I had to stop and, and ask myself, like, how are we going to get these people uh, on side? And it taught me to communicate. It taught me to really spend a lot of time with staff explaining what we were trying to do, why we were trying to do it, and most importantly, Ian, like what their role in that was going to be, right? Because I don't think you can invite hundreds of people to come to work every day because you want to build a big company or a highly valuable company or yeah. because you want the stock price to go through the roof because the guy working on the support desk who doesn't have equity in the company, like he, well, as he cares, it right? Him, yeah. So I, I learned in that moment to translate the strategy of the company and the aspiration of the company into language that was meaningful for everybody in the company, right? So I started talking about what we wanted to do, what we wanted to be, and why if you were in this spot in the company, it would create opportunities for you or income for you or you know some, something important for you. I, I made sure every communication had that kind of free part trilogy to it. What do we want to be? How are we going to get there? And what it means for you know rank and file uh, employee. And, that, and, and some people loved it and were excited. And some people said, you know, not for me, and they and they left, and that was that was okay too. Yeah. So, all right. So let's get into this. So you're the CEO. Correct me if I'm saying this wrong. You're the CEO of Fortenero. Fortero. Fortero. Your partner in Corton Capital, mm-hmm. and you're chairman in FFG. Yeah. So that's a lot. So can you talk about Fortenero, Corton Capital? What are those two companies, and how does that intersect with your chairman position at FFG? So, so Fortero is a, a ERP software company um, focusing on the industrial mid-market in Europe. So it's probably the biggest company in that, in that space uh, in Europe. So business-to-business enterprise software. So we sell direct uh, to customers. Mm-hmm. Um, Corton Capital is a private equity firm. So it's a 1.2 billion euro fund. I've been, in, you know, been part of the team, helped raise that fund. So now what we're trying to do is invest from that fund into you know, technology companies. So, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the guys trying to find opportunities, convince managers to sell us uh, a controlling stake uh, in their business. And FFG is something that me and my family created, um, Fool's Family Group, because on my career journey, I've been helped by so many people. Mm-hmm. So many people have showed up at a moment in time, given me advice, introduced me to somebody, um, helped me out, that I realized success isn't always only talent-based. Sometimes it's opportunities network. So we set up FFG to try to try to play that network effect back to people like us from places uh, like us. So it's a not-for-profit trying to you know, help people um, in their career aspirations. Can you walk us through your investment philosophy? I think everyone here wants an investment gem from you. So when you're looking to acquire a company, what are you looking at in terms of the parameters before you buy a company? And what is something that makes a company like jump off of a, a sheet to you to say, I have to buy this or be involved with mm. it. Uh, it's, it's different. So at Fortero, we're an acquisitive company. I bought six, I bought six companies with Fortero uh, last year, uh, the largest of which we paid 150 million pounds for. Um, so the philosophies are different between how I invest and acquire companies at Fortero and how I would invest as a as a personal or private uh, investor. Can you share both? Yeah, yeah. So, so on Fortero, we've got uh, free value creation streams, right? We want to grow the company by more than fifteen percent organically every year. We want seventy percent or more of the company to be recurring revenue. So that's customers on long term subscription plans because okay. it's a higher quality of revenue. It allows you to invest for the long term because you know you've got this annuity base. Uh, and then the third is we want to expand our profit margins both in net and profit uh, and percentage terms year over year because we want to show the company becomes more efficient as it scales. So when we look at a business, we're, we're trying to figure out which of those parameters is going to accelerate. So I like things that grow faster than us, yes. that are more recurring than 70%, 
and that have a profit margin in percentage terms higher than we have. And if it has all, all three of those and it's in our space, we're probably going to do the deal. If it has two of those, it's better and not, a fr not all three, only two. But I can figure out how to accelerate the third. That's even better. Okay. If it has none of those three, but I can look at it and say, when I own it, I will be able to accelerate all three of those. Those are the best because then you buy those for cheaper mm -hmm. and they become more uh, accretive in, in, uh, in value terms. That's kind of the thesis on the Fortero side. Um, on the personal side, it's, it's two things. I invest in things that I know and understand mm -hmm. um, because I don't have a lot of time. So I need, to, I need to be able to look from distance and say, okay, you know, this, this doesn't look like it's Some going well. Business, right. Yeah. So you need to have pattern recognition and a rhythm for those businesses. So that's normally uh, property and tech. And now I, I do stuff with startups, which is more to be supportive to founders who've got a great idea and I think I can add value. And that's less about whether I'll get a standout return and more just this guy's got a great idea. He's from yeah. Lewisham like me. You know, I think if I participate in this. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> South London. Uh, yeah, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll, invest in, I'll invest in that. This is interesting. I wonder when you talk to founders, like like you said, you, you, you do private equity. And so one of the things that we notice, especially in the States, is that when we have a company, we like to hold on to our companies. We don't like to sell because it's a stigma that if I sell a piece of ownership, I've sort of sold out. What's that like when you approach founders, when you're looking at to be a part of the investment opportunity and ownership of a company? Yeah. I, I get it because I talk to founders all the time. You know, they started their company in 1998. They remortgaged their house three times. You know, they've been living in this business for 20 years, haven't seen their kids, two divorces. And then I show up and say, you know, on my maths, this thing is worth, you know, 80 million. And, and, the, and the guy or the, or the lady saying, I feel like my life's work is worth, you know, more than that. Or I don't, I don't like the emotional element of just handing it over to you for money. There's 200 people in this company who I know their names, I know their family. So I get the the emotional element uh, of doing those deals. What, what I've always tried to do in those conversations is explain that the legacy of the founder will continue under my, under my ownership, right? So the things that they wanted to do, the things that were important to them in building that company will continue to be important, as long as that's true. Like sometimes, you're buying a company, you know you're going to halve the workforce on day one, which isn't a nice thing to do, but that's you know, the capitalist in us and that's, the, that's yeah. the business. But as far as you can continue a founder's legacy and cash them out in a meaningful way for it, it's normally, it's normally a, good, a good thing. And fortunately, I've kind of built a reputation. So when I speak to founders and say, I'm going to continue a legacy, go talk to these six founders who I acquired companies from before, they'll tell you that that's what happened. I've been able to trade a bit on my reputation, um, you know, my reputation with that. But there is this like fetish of complete ownership, which, you know, which which I just don't agree with. Like it's about value creation. Like how does how does ten million become a hundred million? And if if I can make a hundred million owning the minority stake, or make twenty million owning all of it. I, I'm a capitalist, so I'd rather take the hundred than the minority stake. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know why some sometimes, especially in our culture, we're a little bit obsessed with, you know, ownership at all costs, and I, I don't get, I don't get that. So let me ask you this: um, as far as for people that are looking to get capital, whether it's on you know private equity side or venture capital side, what should they do to prepare themselves to pitch their companies to somebody like you? That's a great question. Well, unfortunately, less than 1% of available private equity capital goes to um, minority founders. So if you look like me, you have a disproportionately poor uh, likelihood of, of getting funded, which is something, you know, through my relationship uh, with Cornerstone, we're trying, to, we're trying to change that. We're focused on investing in underrepresented, um, you know, founders. I think yeah, I see pictures all the time. Like I get maybe maybe a hundred messages a week of pictures. The team at FFG probably get probably get more. Um, first of all, I invest when I invest personally in a business, not on the Fortero side. Personally, I'm investing in the person first, uh -huh. like the person. 
because a, a good person will make an average idea a success. An average person can destroy a good a good idea, mm. right? So first thing is the person. So any business I invest in on the personal side, I spend so much time with the person. Like they come to my house for dinner, I go and meet their family, we go and watch games, we sit and drink alcohol because people tell the truth after they've been drinking. So, <laughs> True. So, Great strategy. So I, I, I spend a bunch of time, right? And and normally what I'm looking for in that person is, you know, all the, all the normal things, good work ethic, good business mind. But I want to find the reason that this person needs to be successful for themselves. I need the, the driver in the person. I don't want the person to tell me, if you invest in me, I'll make sure you make a return. I don't want that. I want the person to say, I was bullied at school. My girlfriend left me. I lost a bunch of money. I have a chip and, on my shoulder. And, and this, this making this a success. This is how I, this is how I change my past and create a new future. Right. So I'm, I, the person uh, is the first thing. The second thing is a well thought out idea, and a well thought out idea isn't always somebody describing how this is going to be the next Facebook or Snapchat, which too many founders do, and they. I don't think they realize the kind of um, scarcity element of a Facebook or a, or a Snapchat. And I don't think they realize how much money there is to be made. You know, like a, a free X return is great. Amazing. Right, that's great. So yeah. I don't need, don't tell me I give you 50 grand and you give me back 50 million in six years. Give you 50 grand, give me back 150 grand in six, seven years time. Amazing. So a well thought out business idea with a path to like a modest return, uh, I'm, uh, I'm all in. And then like, like accuracy in the numbers. I, I've seen a lot where people pitch businesses and they're very visionary, they're very creative, which I admire because I'm not. And then we get to the numbers and they're kind of like, well, you know, you don't really need to worry about those too much and I've forgotten and oh shit, I've just realized this isn't adding up the way it's supposed to. Like at some point, this company is gonna have a an amount of pounds in the bank. And if you are not a careful custodian of those pounds, yes. bad things are going to happen. So if you're pitching your business and you, you didn't have the fortitude to even rehearse, to pretend I know your that you were going to be good at managing the pounds, um, you know, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. And sometimes people talk to me as though I just have multiple 50,000s of pounds that I'm just willing to toss around like for vibes and, you know, because it's funny to do. Vibes are important, but yeah. <laughs> It's not, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So th those would be my three. Um, I feel like the geopolitical market and the overall stock market has been in a weird place since 2019. As an investor and business owner, do you think these next three or four years will become a little bit easier or are we like setting up for a black swan event here anytime soon? I think it's a great time to be an investor, isn't it? Like all the nervousness, caution, downturn, these are great times for investors because history's told us, you know, we come out of recessions, we come out of downturns, right? That's what, yeah. what history has told us. So if you deploy capital now, if you're able to deploy capital now and you're able to leave that capital deployed, you're almost invariably gonna make money. Now you have to make good choices about where you deploy it, but yeah. downturns are just, you know, kind of infinite opportunity. So on a personal level, I've been invested more in this downturn than you know, in 2018, 2019. Quick follow-up. Are you worried about VC valuations, the commercial real estate bubble that can pop any contagion level events, or are you just head down focus, focusing on the super these, cycles and buying? These are timing. These, are, these yeah. are all timing events. They're all timing. Like, if you, if you, you know, you buy a house to live in that house, and at some point you might sell that house, over a 25-year period, you're going to lose money on that house. And over a 25-year period, that house is going to be worth a lot more then you paid for it. So the only thing that matters is the moment in time when you need to sell that house. That's the, True. That's the only thing um, that matters. So so downturns, if you have capital, if you have liquidity, if you can get it, are great times to invest. And that's what that's what I've been doing. That's what we've been doing at FFG. We're so aggressive at court and trying to find stuff. You know, we bought six companies last year at Fortero a little bit because of that. Um, so yeah, you don't want to buy something at the peak of the Yeah, absolutely not. That, that's, that's, that, that's tough. But yeah, it's a great great time to be and what's your holding period my last follow-up uh it it depends it depends what it is so for for real estate uh, you know we, we we own a lot of properties um double digit years you know 10 10 15 years maybe uh tech clap it up seven seven why seven tech tech is tech is up 
up to seven because normally over over a seven year cycle on privately held tech, you, you yeah. know, you find it, you find a moment to, to you find a moment to get out. Me. But also, tech can kind of defy valuations. So if you have a hot company, strategic mm -hmm. buyer, you can defy kind of market conditions and, yeah. and valuations. So tech a little bit, a little bit. Can, can we can we go back to last year, February twenty twenty two? And I just want to give people context. When we talk about this is a rare conversation, this is a legendary moment. Fotero achieved something that I don't think we've spoken to anybody that has done this. You achieved a tech unicorn, right? Which means a billion dollars raised, correct? Please clap it up for that. That's tough to do in any market. Euros, euros, Euro, euros. a billion euros. Even more. I, I mean, I, I trust my intuition, but what is that like for you when you trust your intuition, you've got the process of how you're gonna inv uh, invest in companies, but when you see something like this happen, what, what was that, that moment like? Oh, oh my God. That was, um, yeah, that was, that was unbelievable. That was emotional for a few reasons. You know, number one, when I got to Fortero, the, the valuation was 376. So when I walked in the door, it was uh, you know, 376. Um, number two, I told the investor who I was going to work with that 24 months billion euros, and he was like, "Yeah, don't worry about it. You know, six, seven will be okay." I said, "No, no, billion euros." Um, and just secondly, the the again the scarcity of that, right? I, I think I I did something with Bloomberg where they said there are 6,700 privately held companies on Earth with a market cap of a billion or more, and only eight of them are run by black, um, you know, black operatives. Wow. So to be in that conversation is just, just you know, unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's all. Uh, I mean, that, that's pretty amazing, but it's also pretty alarming. Yeah. Six thousand companies, and only eight, and only eight are run by a black person. And another thing that's pretty alarming, which you spoke about, where so. We spoke with uh, a gentleman named Don Peoples, who's the top black real estate developer in America. And yeah, shout out to, shout shout to Don. Don. And he, he told us that um, there was 11 trillion in private equity and venture capital in America, money that's been flowing every, every single year. Um, and out of that 11 trillion, 97.5% um, goes to white men. So that means that 2.5% is divvied up between women, all women of every race, mm -hmm. and every person of any color. Yeah. Black, Spanish, Indian, doesn't matter. So the, the whole entire, every single person outside of white men are fighting for 2.5%. So when we spoke to Robert Smith, who's the richest black American ever, he told us the other side of that story where he said, that 97.5% 97 of all venture capital and private equity firms are run by white men. So now it starts to make sense. Yeah. White men lend to white men. So how do we have more private equity, venture capital firms? Because, I mean, it's been proven that people kind of usually look out for each other. And... That's just like historical fact. So black firms higher proportionally lend to black people. It would make sense. The problem is that we just don't have enough black companies. So how do we get more black private equity firms and more black venture capital? Because that's that's the part of the, the wealth gap that nobody talks about. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, you can we can implement programs, we can get more college degrees, but you ultimately are only going to be as good as the exposure that you have and the capital that you can raise. So if you don't have access to money and you don't have any relationships, you or could be angels, the, the yeah. brightest person in the world. It's not going to work. Yeah. Where Mark Zuckerberg, he has a great idea, but more importantly, he has millions of dollars in capital to get Facebook started. Yeah. If he didn't have that money, then Facebook would have just been another good idea. Yeah. So how do we solve, how do we help work to solve this problem? Wow. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it's a big, it's, it, it's a big deal. I, I think there's like a few, there's a few different elements to it, right? So um, 
I'm a big believer in taking like f- responsibility for it. Right? Let's take let's take responsibility for it. I think I I don't have hostility towards the way capital is deployed by private equity or venture capital because of the familiarity with what you see. Right. So I don't hold any grudge to a, a, a white man who's going to make a 50 million euro investment in a company doing it to something and somebody that he feels very comfortable with, very familiar with, he's seen a bunch of times before, right? I, I don't have any I don't have any any issue with that. His job is to turn that capital into more capital. So if he's more comfortable with this bet versus this one, I, I don't I don't have hostility towards the, them for doing that. So when I say take responsibility, I mean I feel like there's an element, there's an element of us understanding this game. And when we walk into those rooms, understanding that 110% is the minimum, and 120% maybe gets us the gig, right? That's just where we are in society. We're a minority in most of the major economies. So on, whether we like it or not, that is the gig, right? So when I say to you, I see, I spend every Saturday morning looking at pitches for FFG. And let's say I look at 10 pitches each Saturday morning. I can tell you that seven or eight of those pitches are poorly prepared, contain spelling mistakes, people are wrestling with the technology for the first time. And this is before we get to the the viability of the business idea, right? Before we get to the viability of the business idea, we can show up better than that. Like let's let's invest and and use our friends and use our networks to show up up better than that. So let's take responsibility for being uber excellent in the first place. Then there comes the next part, which is, um, you know, coming up with something that is credible, viable, and having the tenacity to push it uh, in the first place, right? So being prepared for the nose, being prepared for the ego bumps, but continue to go because even Zuckerberg and uh, Jobs and Bezos all had their moments where people were kicking them in the shins and saying this thing perhaps isn't going to make it out. So we have to be ready for those things too. And then, yeah, there is us in private equity. There is us in VCs who have to work harder to break that familiarity cycle of only ever deploying capital and things that we've seen before, things that we know before, and people that we've worked with before, right? And I take myself out of that for a moment because now we're talking about the people who control those firms who are invariably, you know, not us and don't look like us. There is more effort that needs to be made, you know, to to break that familiarity cycle. But I definitely put it in place free. I definitely put it in place free. Do, do we collectively want private equity to deploy a pound behind a black founder who is you know, poorly prepared, poorly researched. I don't think that's reasonable. Show up, A game, well researched, well prepared, good deck, and then yeah, then it then it you've you've put it on them to back you at that point. So I think we've got to take a lot of responsibility. You have a follow up or you go? You go, yeah. Got a follow up? No. Okay. Well, well I do have a follow up. <laughs> I know him. Go ahead. I agree with everything you said, but what? I also think that it's awareness to have positions of so I we was at Diddy's house. And shout to Black Caesar. <laughs> you see the little casual, humble flex? Talk your talk. Say it again. Oh, where, wait. Miami? Star Island? Where were you at? Wait, wait. Where, where were you at? Oh, they Rush. know me. Where were you, you know at? That, they, you've heard of that guy before? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, him. That's yeah. so cool, by the so way. So we was talking, and he was very passionate about wanting to solve the wealth gap and wanting to help black people. And, and, and I was telling him that, okay, we have some people now that have become billionaires through entertainment through sports, a couple of different areas. It's great to start a clothing brand or start a tequila brand, but what would be better is if a few of them came together and started a private equity firm or started a venture capital firm. Great idea, right? Or started a political lobby. Oh. So I think that part of that is the education for the people do, that do have resources. They may not be able to do it themselves, but collectively, and they're not expertise. That's why you said, oh, I'm not an expert. Well, you don't have to be an expert. This is when you bring somebody that has an expertise in to run the company. Just like somebody might not be an expert in fashion, but they'll bring a designer in yeah. and they'll... So I, I understand why white people would... Why a white man would lend to a white man, but it is not sustainable. There's a reason why the economies is on a decline. This is what I told, we was in front of, we was in Bloomberg. I told the room full of Bloomberg, I said, look, 
the way that the capitalistic society in America has worked is not working. Yeah, that's broken. And if you keep if you keep with the same philosophy of empowering people, the problem is that a lot of people look at empowering disenfranchised people as charity. It's really it's best practices. Yeah. If you keep looking at it like it's charity, this is why we are declining. Yeah. Right. And other countries are inclined. And China are rising off. Of, so yeah, I think that we have to start pushing a narrative of this. Like we got to push a narrative to even make people aware that most people don't even know that. Yeah. They don't even know about private equity and venture capital and different things of that nature. So it's like we need more private equity, more venture capital. But if they're not even aware of it or if the narrative is not pushed for it, yeah. then we're not even in a position where we can even try to help ourselves. Yeah, I, f I, think, I, I think you're right. But how it happens at scale, I think, is, is something that we can really take, you know, we can really take charge of. If you take Corton Capital, we raised 1.2 billion. As part of my participation with them, I said, we are going to invest in 10 black-led businesses each and every year, right? Which is, which is cool. Does it shift the needle entirely? Probably not. The, the main reason that's important to me is it will condition these guys to reviewing, you know, 50, 60 businesses, right? So now they see 60 businesses that they may not otherwise not have looked at, will invest in 10, and you get, you, you start to change that familiarity cycle. And that, yeah. that for me is the main thing, changing that familiarity cycle. That's why these conversations are great. That's why, you know, my career, I think, has been important away from the numbers. There's now a set of private equity firms who think, well, we backed, we backed Dean, we made three, four, six times our money. So when the next Dean walks through the room, they kind of go, well, we, we don't want to miss the next Dean. So maybe yeah. like we, we listen to this a little bit differently. For me, it's like breaking that familiarity cycle. But we like we got to show up with our A game. Like we, we got to take responsibility for that. For all the entrepreneurs here, what project, product, or innovation needs to be created in this new landscape that will allow them like an irresistible path to getting funded. Because we have enough social media companies, we have enough DoorDash and delivery service type companies. What's the next wave? AI is already here, so I think most of us may have missed the boat on that. What do you think is the next innovation or project or product that we need to create that can get funded? The, the thing I struggle with the most at Fortero, the thing we struggle with the most at, at Corton, and the businesses we look at at Corton and even Fortero struggle with is talent. It is, you know, finding brilliant people, you know, getting them into the company, keeping them in the company for the right amount of time. And I know it sounds strange, but like extracting value from them whilst they were a, a kind of a tenant yeah. uh, of our company. So I think any technology solution that is helping companies find the right talent, engage the right talent, extract value, or, or not, not extract, exchange value because people should be compensated for their work. Yeah. Um, like that to me is a is a really important place right now. Our strategy to create value at Fortera, I think, is very defensible. Market conditions are favorable. Whether or not I'm successful depends on, you know, the two thousand people that come to work every day, the three hundred of them that will leave, and the six hundred of them I'll, I'll replace with. Like, how does that cycle move? That that, that is where success or failure um, will be determined. So anything around optimizing uh, human capital and human talent. I think do want to follow up real quick. Okay. Do you think we have more talent if tech companies decided to pay more? <laughs> you know, it's a tech CEO. Somebody's going to work tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> need that raise. I mean, can we be very honest here and in the States? There are a lot of people, I think, who are looking for jobs, but it seems when I talk to people on a daily basis, they've almost given up hope that almost all the good jobs are gone. Or if I have a tremendous value, I won't. Does everyone in here feel like they're getting paid what they're worth? Good Does anyone in here feel like they are getting paid what they're worth? Shout to you. Nobody's going to pay you like you pay yourself. Defense. So you're never going to get paid how much you're worth unless you're paying yourself. Great point. They, they took their clap back. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if... if Compensation creates talent. I don't, know if I, I, don't, I don't know if I pay a person more, they become more, um, you know, they become more talented. I, I do think there's like a comp issue. Like in the tech yeah. space, we've seen Facebook bin people, Google have laid off a bunch of people. I think even Amazon have announced that they're laid yeah. off people. Yep. So yeah, there's a, there's a 
there's clearly a talent and compensation issue in the tech space for sure. Yeah, I think the beauty, but not in my company. Like not yours, of course. Yeah, we got to be clear. Not his. Yeah, yeah, not of me. course. Well compensated. Well, well compensated. Uh, the thing about tech, and I love it, is because of the growth and because of innovation and because of disruption that it causes. We said AI is here. I wonder how you look at it from a private investor in terms of are you looking for companies that are creating new forms of AI or are you looking at companies that if they had AI can enhance their performance? Oh, they, we love the latter. Like if a company is doing great and just haven't figured out that applying AI could create a bunch of value, then yeah, you acquire that company, you put the AI in and you create a, a set of value that you know they they maybe uh, they maybe missed out on. So yeah, we we you know we love AI. We're doing some interesting things, um, you know, with with AI at the moment. But any any company that we can acquire where the application of AI is a immediate accelerant is a is a great deal to to go after. Can I get a follow up real quick? Absolutely. So in, in terms of creating talent, I want to go back to that a little bit because yes, AI will make things more efficient, and so that talent level kind of gets increased unless they have the talent inside of that space. How do we go about forming intentionality around crafting the talent or creating an incubator, in a sense, to have talent so that we know where we can go if we need it? Yeah, like there's been a lot of debates about AI, like wiping out mass jobs and these kind of things. And it comes back to like the innovation question, you know, like over, over time, over decades, disruptions, innovations happen in the market, the wheel took out a bunch of jobs where people would carry stuff from one place to another place. Then we had the wheel, so now it needed one person to drive wherever it was. So like this stuff happens, you know, all, all of the time. So like humanity will just redefine itself, I, I think. Although AI is probably the biggest, you know, innovation disruption of the of the 20th century or 21st century. Um in terms of in terms of talent, people are staying less in education than than uh, than they ever have and people are staying shorter tenures in jobs um, than they ever have. So as an employer, I am a little bit worried about like the depth of expertise. Mm -hmm. right? So where people stayed 10 years in a job and they built up incredible expertise and domain knowledge in a job, don't really do that anymore. And where people stayed in education and got PhDs because it was the thing to do, they don't, they don't do that anymore. So, you know, statistically, you would expect the degree of expertise to fall off which as an employer is a is a worrying a worrying phenomenon. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. How are you how are you you say you're excited about AI as far as how are you utilizing AI and what are your plans to utilize AI in your in your businesses? So so at, at Fortero, the the main application of AI, which I think is pretty cool. So we so we serve industrial companies who are usually manufacturing goods, right? Manufacturing um, you know, different elements of machinery, etc. Um, so for some of our customers, the goods and products that they make are kind of weather dependent. So we have a we have a customer who makes garden furniture. So we are using AI to um, predict sales demand, which is based on historical trends, effectiveness of their salespeople, plus weather patterns, right? Forward forward facing weather patterns. Mm. So we know in you know good weather times, people order more garden garden furniture. In bad weather times, they they don't. That, now that's important because instead of buying, I don't know, to have a garden table which is predominantly glass. So instead of buying fifty glass sheets for these tables because they've got fifty two orders, they buy three hundred glass sheets because they anticipate three hundred orders. And as we know, you buy three hundred at a lower price per unit than you buy fifty. So it's just unlocking margin yeah. for them with clever use of AI, and you apply that across all of their products all of the timelines, all the sales people, you help them incrementally buy, you know, elements and uh, components of their products at a lower and lower uh, per unit price. You also help them not stock things that they're not gonna sell. So mm -hmm. now they're not buying things, deploying cash, putting it in the warehouse, paying for its storage. So you're just helping them gain more and more margin. Very, very simple but effective uh, use of AI and machine learning. You've had a few successful exits. Just talk like it's just me and you. you. Like, it's maybe a few, a few. How the hell you pull this off this many times? Like, walk us through your process, and can you tell us how difficult it is to have that many exits? But for all the aspiring entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in the building, did you start with that end goal in mind, or like, what was your rationale? 
Because, like, to be able to do what you've done and be a unicorn, that's not by accident. Uh, I, ju- I always had, like, each project at a time. Like, I was never, when I was at, Fort, at Primavera, I was never thinking one day I'll be in a company that would do, would do a unicorn. I was just kind of at Primavera thinking, man, like, these people are talking about this thing going for 300, 400 million. I've got, you know, 3% of this company. That would be like life changing. So now this deal has to get done because that's yeah. going to, and then that happened and then you go to KDS and KDS was a much smaller company losing money. So that was a pride thing where it was like, okay, I've come out of the comfort of Oracle, you know, the, the um, cachet of being in one of the world's greatest tech companies. I'm in this kind of startup in France. It's going badly. So now this has to work, right? So now you're trying to make that work and that was very difficult. And then I went to, core HR and I was asking myself like are you any good you know you did Primavera you weren't the CEO you did KDS okay you've done one you need to prove that you're actually good and you know what you're doing so that became the core HR thing and then when I came out of core HR and I had this opportunity yeah that's when I put the billion on it to say I like the sound of two billion and exit so this now has to be (laughs) two billion exit it was always you hear how casually he says that (laughs) Like it's two thousand. Yeah, it's a two billion dollar. Uh, but you, you, you know something, and it's it's something I heard you guys uh, talk about as well. I was very lucky. Like people broke my horizons, right? Because growing up, how I grew up and how a lot of people grow up, like you cap your horizons. You start to think that certain things are not possible, or certain numbers just sound too big. I remember pitching KDS to Google, and we were in the hotel room the night behind, before we wanted Google to buy um, KDS. So we're in the hotel room the night before with our business plan and everything I said about investing in well thought out business plan to just pause that for a second because we're in the hotel room going through the business plan going, this isn't exciting enough for them. So add a zero, add a zero to all of these numbers. Right? So it's adding zeros. And then we're looking at it again going, you've all done it when applying for a job. This is the same thing at a higher level. And then we're like, ah, still like add another zero. Like just get at it. So we're just dumping numbers into this uh, business plan and rehearsing the business plan to say like, with authority like we really did it. And we went into Google and the guy said, see if we achieve this business plan, what will be our market share uh, in those in those economies? And I think we said, you know, we'll, we'll get up to like 14, 15%, which isn't bad market share. And the guy said, well, how do you measure market share? And we said, so of all of the companies that would use a product like this, we'll have 15, 14, 15% of them. And he said, oh, we measure market share differently. So I said, how do you measure it? He said, by population of the globe that have internet connectivity. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right. Different right. perspective right. is key. So, so, so you're just like, all right, you know, they, we couldn't have put enough zeros in this thing to make it, you know, to, to make it relevant. But I'm lucky I've had those, I've had those moments where people have just blown, you know, blown my context. I remember when we were pitching, uh, I think it was KDS again, and we had an offer for 65 million. And I was telling the then investor that it was really difficult and maybe we should accept this offer. You know, it's a good offer, 65 million. And it was on his jet, actually. We sat on his private jet talking through this talking through this offer. And I've never seen anybody me be more disappointed. He invested $4 million, by the way, mm-hmm. and he was going to get back 65. And I've never seen anybody more disappointed in that return profile. <laughs> like he, And he, he said to me, I'll never forget it, and I've told this story before. He said, you know, what are you going to do? If we sell this company for 65 million, you know, you're going to make a, a bit of money. You're going to buy a, a beach house, a holiday house in the south of France, a, a watch and a Porsche, and then what are you going to do? <laughs> right? and, but he was telling you a truth, though. But I was thinking... Yeah. Sounds about that sounds sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, you got it. I don't need to. But he was so disappointed that my aspiration for this company was so mediocre because for him, it wasn't. And he he was spending far less time in the company than I was. So it made me think: if I'm going to put six days a week into this, like I should get. Do you know what I mean? So so we have. I've had those moments that have just blown my horizon. So two billion, I know, is a lot of money. But it's not nearly enough. Like there's nowhere near enough. How much is enough? Stretch our horizons. The the number for me isn't so for Tiro we did it we did it a billion. I think by the time we get done, you know, three years, four billion would be a good How much is enough for you though? In terms of my own my own um 
my own personal money, I'm, a, I'm okay now. Like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> flex. Clap it up I for think, that. Yeah. So before we, before, that's a fact. Before we leave, last question I wanted to ask you was about the wine. Oh, sparkling wine. Yeah, this is in tech now. This is a different industry. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never invested outside of my two comfort zones of property and tech. But I've always been curious about our culture. And our culture is, but forgive me, it's kind of music, food, and, you know, uh, drink to, to a degree, right? That's kind of our culture. When we're enjoying ourselves, when we're celebrating our, our successes, plus family and friends, that's really our culture. So I always wanted to do a drink. I, I always kind of had this passion to do that. Um, but I knew I couldn't put it in our culture. I don't have the connectivity to, you know, music and the, the social culture in that way. So I never, I never really committed to it. Um, and then by chance, uh, Carl Loco, who's you know chairman of uh, Blackseed, which is a VC investing only in in black founders, had me come and speak at an event. And I bumped into a, a friend of mine, Dumi, who I've known a long time, but we've never really collaborated on anything. And we're just chatting backstage. And he says, oh, "What do you think of this?" He shows me the pitch deck, and it's the pitch deck for Severin, which is a, a sparkling wine. And the the theory behind the wine is it's a, it's an African grape, so South African Chardonnay grape that we bring over to the UK and finished. And Dumi's thing was it is born in Africa, finished in the UK, which is which is us. And if you if you met Dumi or you know Dumi, Dumi's like our Damon Dash. Like when you sit with Dumi, <laughs> okay, like you, you get tired listening to him because he's like, you know, we gotta do this and our culture need this and we're gonna make a bunch of money and we need to stop drinking other people's drinks. And he just I love that. Like he he was so like passionate about it and he managed uh WizKid, you know, Jesse J, Tiny Temper. So he's and many others. So his connectivity to the culture was there. He's got amazing energy and passion. Started in Africa, finished in the UK, which is which is us. So I was uh, I was I was in. And I think that the beautiful part of that was he had a little bit of equity left for investors, and it wasn't enough for me because I wanted to be a meaningful investor. So I said, you know, is there a way for us to make it bigger? And he was just like, Yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do that because this is a thing for us. So we want us. Uh, involved in it and it was it, it was kind of a beautiful moment for him to just open the door uh, in that way and I'm I'm like excited we got bottles backstage we've been drinking before we came out here so <laughs> what's the I'm name excited. of it? what's the name I of it Severin Wines everybody go check it out and yeah. we, I'd love to hear what you think if you buy it and you like it tell me if you buy it and you don't like it you can tell me too um, we're trying to get it right it's a very very important investment for me so well, we can't wait to go backstage and sip it with you <laughs> yes for sure <laughs> ladies and gentlemen make some noise for Dean make some Ford. noise Thank you so much. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.